This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today I have with me David Donaldson, who is the CEO and Clinical Director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome, David. Hi. Thank you, Susan. I'm glad to be here. I am glad to have you. We've got a number of interesting things that have popped up in the news that I think sometimes it's just really good to step back and look at what are folks reading about, talking about, what's in the news about addiction. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Some of the new releases of information, some of the questions, some of the confusion that happens when people with addiction or addictive drugs um, take a forefront in the news. I do, however, want to start out by reminding folks to remember that with spring cleaning, it is important that you consider cleaning out your medicine cabinets. In the fall, it's important to remember to clean out your medicine cabinets. Around the holidays, as you're decorating for the holidays, clean out your medicine cabinets. It is, of course, on April 30th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency's National Drug Take Back Day. This is a day that is designed to remind folks the necessity to clean out their medicine cabinets, take care to properly dispose of, and I'm saying properly because that's really important, to properly dispose of unused, old, expired medications. This is not only a safety issue for yourself, but it is also one of the ways that we know we can reduce the access to prescription drugs of use and abuse, particularly this access that is um, found by young people, adolescents and young adults. This, we know, is their number one way of attaining a recreational prescription drugs, not from the drug dealer down the street, but from someone, uh, including their own home drug cabinet. So really important for us to take a look, consider, and dispose of all these unused medications. I, I surprised that it's come up again. Usually we um, will have a guest from the DEA to, to remind us of this topic, and it's <laughs> always very interesting that the different statistics and issues that they bring. The other part, you know, the, the often the joke is about, I got it from Grandma's medicine cabinet, um, but part of what the, the DEA always really emphasizes how um, the elderly people real often really don't have... Um, a clear idea of all the different medications that they have and what they're all for and and they're prone to more confusion about the subject anyway so and taking the time to clean out your own medicine cabinet you might also want to reach out to your your parents and family members to to help them do the same and and promote safety for everybody because we know 
first exposure, the younger the exposure, the, the greater the risk of addictive potential, and, and that's real often where first exposure comes from. And as we see the progression of prescription drug use, one of the things that we're aware of is getting it free from the medicine cabinet is a really good deal because they can identify the medication, they can look it up on their app on their smartphone, and be sure the dose that they're taking and the type of medicine. So it seems like a really good idea, and recreationally they have a good but potentially dangerous time. Over time, though, as they begin to use more and more of the drug and it becomes less easily available, cost goes up if they have to buy this on the street. And then we see that very unfortunate and too many times lethal transition to using heroin, which is much more easily available these days and much less expensive. But, and I think also that the young developing brain at that time is getting rewards for several things apart from just the opiate. So they're getting rewards from the sneaky behavior, and look what I just got out of Grandma's medicine cabinet. Um, and, and so... Whether they get the addictive reaction to the medication or not, they're already getting um, um, an abuse reaction that's that's setting them up for continued problems. And I think that um, that is, uh, uh, unfortunately, the ongoing clear story that we see over and over again is that it's not just the drugs, it's um, also the behaviors. In a moment, we're going to talk about a new story that was um, just released regarding sensation-seeking behavior, and that sneaky behavior really does influence someone's willingness to experiment with drugs and alcohol. But I did want to give everyone... Uh, information about how you can find out where your local take-back center will be. Mostly they're associated with law enforcement agencies. You can Google DEA uh, take-back day or you can go deadiversion.gov disposal. The take-back initiative um is very helpful because it provides a way for people to discreetly and safely dispose of their medications. One of the things that people may not be aware of is the fact that you can't return your unused medications to a pharmacy. You can't return your unused medications to um, your doctors who prescribe them. You can't give your unused medications to another person. That is illegal. All of the previously mentioned behaviors are illegal. They are prohibited. But we also don't want people dumping their medications down the sink or flushing them down the toilet because we are getting contamination in our rivers and streams, and this is not a good thing. So please allow the DEA and local law enforcement to help you with this uh, opportunity to clean, do some spring cleaning and clean out your medicine cabinet. Again, that's Saturday, April 30th from 10 till 2 p.m. And you can go on the DEA um, 
website and find a local um, disposal site near you. In the state of Georgia, every county has a permanent disposal site. Uh, there is a uh, a disposal box that is in every um, state, mostly associated with the county law enforcement agency, but you can also find that information out um, on the DEA website. So please take this opportunity to remind yourself and others about the necessity of safe disposal and safe storage of drugs and alcohol, or excuse me, of drugs, and um, particularly the prescription drugs. We want to minimize and hopefully one day eliminate this as a source of exposure for young people. So, David, sensation-seeking. You were mentioning that part of what the young people may get as they're sneaking those drugs out of grandma's medicine cabinet and taking them to the party that they're probably not supposed to be going to either, that this thrill in and of itself can often be very rewarding to the individual. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, real often when I'm having my first meeting with a new client, I'll, I'll ask them to tell me their first exposure story, their first use story, whether it's related to um, stealing cigarettes or stealing alcohol or stealing. Stealing's always in the, in the conversation. <laughs> Usually, um, stealing yes. Stealing medication from. And... and you know, you can you can really watch a person's face as they're talking about that first that first exposure and the brightness in their eyes and their smile and and the recalled memory of of every bit of the events. It becomes one of those imprinted things that that really um, shapes their the next few years of their life. Um, and it's it's always interesting when you're watching somebody who's an opiate addict talk about those stories they they will smile despite themselves <laughs> yes um, they will and and it will creep up over their face and they they um absolutely had had an experience with that first use and it starts all the way back to where they got it or how they first acquired it so they're sneaking off to use the um substance and they're also adding theft to the experience very very often they're sneaking the cigarettes out of their mom's purse or they're sneaking the alcohol out of dad's liquor cabinet or they're stealing the prescriptions out of uh, someone's medicine cabinet in any event you're absolutely right that is often part of the first story of the first experience and and what we're what they're often talking about is that risk-taking behavior of um Almost getting caught. Almost getting caught is regularly a part of the story, and the whole thrill of I almost got caught and I got away with it, or they walked right by me and they didn't notice that I was just hidden right around the corner. Those those things that add that just little element of a good thriller story onto it, that, that as the study is starting to point out, is that that part of the developing brain um, is, is highlighted or heightened in these experiences. 
Absolutely. So a study that was released on April 5th, 2016, not too long ago, a psychologist at Yale University and a team at Harvard University and Massachusetts General in Boston did a a very interesting study looking at about 1,200 males and females years 18 to 35. These were healthy young people. These were not people who were enrolled in a drug or alcohol treatment program. These were not young people who were engaged in uh, a a psychiatric or behavioral health program. These were healthy um, young people. I often say that the source of these volunteers is usually people taking psychology classes at local universities. I don't know that's the case for this situation. But anyway, what they did is they got these 1,200 males and females with no history of psychiatric disorder or substance use um, disorder. They used magnetic resonance imaging or an MRI and they measured the size and the shape of particular areas of the brains of these young people. And then they had the young people also complete a series of questionnaires that outlined their association with thrill-seeking and impulsivity, their need for novel, interesting, and intense experiences, and their willingness to take risks and their tendencies to make rapid, quick-fire decisions. Um, They also asked the participants to discuss their use of alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. So... These were just a naturalistic study, as we we say, and they took a look at these young people and looked at their brain. And what they found is that in people who reported seeking high levels of stimulation or excitement, that they had reduced (laughs) cortical thickness or the gray matter, which is the actual neurons, the actual brain cells, in brain regions like the prefrontal cortex up the area behind your forehead, behind your eyes, that part of your brain is associated with decision-making and self-control. And the strongest links occurred in um, the areas of the brain that were related to regulation of emotions and behaviors. The anterior cingulate, and we've talked about this this gear shifter part of our brain that is so important in terms of directing our attention and our behavior from uh, emergency burglar alarm system, gotta run and hide or stay and fight, to our prefrontal cortex, our decision-making part of our brain. And what they found is that, again, in young people who are risk takers, they were also much more likely to be using drugs and alcohol and tobacco, and they were much more likely to have changes in these important regions of the brain, a significant study that has, for the first time, been able to show how shifts in brain anatomy and function might affect Um, addictive behaviors, psychiatric illness, and poor outcomes. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about addiction in the news. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? 
and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Along with me today is David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about addiction in the news, and we were reporting a study that was done with some psychologists from Yale University, also researchers at Harvard University and Mass General Hospital, looking at MRI studies of healthy young adults, ages 18 to 35, male and female, looking at the changes in the structure of their brain that was seen um, and comparing that with questionnaires and assessments in terms of that person's risk-taking behavior, impulsivity, their use of drugs and alcohol, and seeing that there was indeed a correlation between those folks who had more impulsive risk-taking behavior. They were more likely to use substances, and they had uh, lesser, um, less thickness in the cortical area, the part of your brain that makes decisions and controls impulses. And there was increased activity in the anterior cingulate, which is the part of the brain that controls emotion and helps you manage um, self-control and make decisions. So... I see this, um, and these were healthy controls. These were not folks that were identified as having addiction. So uh, this is a, a very interesting study. I wish they could continue it and follow these folks and see if indeed some of these individuals do actually develop 
uh, the disease of addiction later on in their life because this is one of the questions. When we do these MRI studies on people who have addiction, we do see these changes. We see them very clearly with a spec scan. We can see decreased activity in that prefrontal cortex, difficulty with their uh, cingulate gyrus and their insula. So we see these changes very Clearly, the thought has all, and the question has always been: chicken or egg? Mm-hmm. Well, and part and and part of what we wonder about, because for me, when you're reading the study, so much of what they're talking about just sounds so stereotypically like young adolescent or young adult males. And this study in particular talked about looking at young men and women. Um, um, so I, I was interested to see what the studies may have shown in terms of some sexual differences. But they, this study so far has not, not released any of that part of the data. Um, when I think about our patients, they're, they're both doing high-risk situations, but very, very different high-risk situations. Um, and real often the females are putting themselves in very vulnerable yes. um, um, sexual situations or in, in um, unsafe uh getting in cars they shouldn't get into kind of things, whereas guys are jumping off mountain cliffs. And, and um, so I, I wonder with their impulse control and what the behavior choices end up being, if that's part of where the study's going to go. That would be quite interesting to see. That, that really would be to see that gender difference because I think that is important um, to understand that we do see the impulsivity. We do see poor decision-making. We do see adrenaline-seeking behaviors. Sometimes they look similar, but often they look very different. We'll see uh, men going to extreme sports or wanting to do triathlons and wanting to uh, engage in risky physical activity. Women are also, as you mentioned, in risky situations, but it's um, generally with regards to their personal safety in terms of relationships and being in safe, (laughs) secure places. Yeah. Um, So we see that. We see the aftermath of this very commonly in our patients, but this is an interesting study to me that shows us that we may um, we it may be again when we talk about the brain disease this may be part of the brain disease that we may see these changes in the in the normal population before they have actually developed the disease of addiction yeah and part of what this talks about is that bias that that people that have um, the the thinner gray matter in the in the executive portion of their brain are showing a bias towards these behaviors and and real often what we talk about in terms of in the addiction world is is that genetic predisposition or that hardwiring towards these things um and a lot of times we talk about that based on all of the all the people we've worked with and what we've seen but we're beginning to actually have some some evidence um that's pointing towards it on a, on a on a scientific level, which will be really exciting, and we'll have to follow this study and see if we get more information as um, as they release more data. I think that reminds me of another um, important uh, because you were mentioning the male and female difference, and there was another study that was released. Uh, very recently that was looking at uh, the idea that we've always thought in the olden days when I 
<laughs> was growing up and being trained in psychiatry and addiction medicine, the risk for developing the disease of addiction was related to being male. That was really commonly taught. That was a very commonly assumed belief. And it was up until very recently that we were really saying that men were much more likely, particularly around certain substances. But um, the National um, Survey on Drug Use and Health just released some information regarding the 12 to 24-year-old U.S. residents, and as they looked at the reported underage drinking, they have found that there's no longer a male excess. There's no longer more males engaging in underage and risky drinking. Uh, that difference has disappeared, and women are m- as likely to be drinking. They're more likely to be smoking, and they are more likely to be um, misusing stimulant prescription drugs. So we have to rethink over and over again our, our own biases with regards to who is vulnerable for this disease and what what are we going to see? Mm-hmm. It may look differently, and I think that's an important point that you made. Um, the way the behaviors exhibit themselves may be different, but the actual genetic predisposition and the exposure to substances now is very much equal. But and I think a lot of um, the stereotype that we that we used to see was that the females would be drawn towards the the things that are going to help them stay skinny or stay right. thin. Mm-hmm. They would use the amphetamines and they'd use the nicotine rather than, than eating a regular diet. Um, and part of what this study is highlighting is that now, um, in a quite a few areas, there's actually a higher incidence of women drinking than there there is for males, where that gap has, has totally reversed in some areas, um, which is... is just amazing and again i think it's part of what you're talking about that it's just become so much easier um the idea that you can now buy wine at the checkout at cvs or at a drugstore um is is just such a change from from a day when you had very limited hours that you could you could buy it or you had to buy it at specific types of stores right now there's there's no social stigma to where i can go to get it and so so i think that change is part of the gap as well I do, too. And I think that um, if you look at the statistics around um, alcohol, tobacco, and calories uh, since the early 1900s through today, we used to see that um, tobacco was relatively... um, Unheard of. Very few people were using tobacco in the 1800s. And if they were, it was primarily males. We would see a vast majority of the males, a huge amount of um, males drinking alcohol. And the consumption of alcohol, particularly in the late 1800s, early 1900s, became such a big, big. Problem that there were many movements and many attempts, including prohibition, to try and decrease the amount of alcohol consumed. 
as time went on and there was this decrease, as we saw the decrease in in the use of alcohol, we began to see increase in the amount of tobacco use, and we saw an increase in the number of calories consumed. As we move along and get into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, all of those things draw, jump up tremendously. And the difference is not that men are suddenly now drinking, smoking, and eating more. It's the fact that women are now being included in the equation, particularly for smoking and drinking, where it really was a male-dominated sport, if you will, really um, up through the 1950s. Now we're seeing that there is less tobacco consumption, which is awesome. There is actual less overall alcohol consumption. There is a great increase in calories. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, probably about to get in trouble, um, <laughs> but my niece is is preparing to go to a wedding at the end of the summer, and she's got some some pounds that she'd like to lose so she started running and she posted in a funny way but also a true way her struggle is now she has a chart letting her know what kind of wine to use when she's having which kind of pizza so it's becoming that much of a norm you know well, and I um, was at a restaurant in, in New York City that specializes in um, desserts and pairing beer with desserts. So now we're seeing uh, these combinations of uh, we uh, the, the drug we're using may change, but the amount stays the same. We're just becoming equal opportunity. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed 
to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. I have with me today David Donaldson, who's the CEO and Clinical Director of the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about different topics surrounding addiction in the news. I do, again, want to remind folks that on Saturday, April 30th, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., there is the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, um, National Take Back Day, where they are set up around the country with opportunities for patients, um, family members, uh, people in general to clean out your old medications. It doesn't have to be opiates. It doesn't have to be addictive medications. It's any medicines. Please bring them in and let them be disposed of properly and remind yourself to clean out your medicine cabinets, store your medications safely, and dispose of them appropriately. So check the DEA website uh, for local details, times, and locations. Some of the interesting information in the news uh, this week was also around smoking cessation and the difficulty uh, that we've had in terms of reducing smoking. Now, I do have to tell you that over the last 15 to 20 years, we have seen a decrease in the total number of smokers. Unfortunately, we still have anywhere from 22 to 27 percent of the population smoking. If we look at the percentage of the populations with addictive disorders or significant mental illness, we see that it's anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of these individuals are using tobacco products. And we know that information is very clear that 50 percent of the people using tobacco products, according to the instructions on the package, will die of a tobacco-related illness. Six million people die every year worldwide related to um, use of tobacco products and smoking. One of the difficulties has been around how do you help people stop smoking? There have been many Attempts. There have been many theories. There have been a number of ways in which this is suggested for people. And this very interesting study that um, was published in the um, Annals of Internal Medicine talks about the difference between stopping smoking suddenly, abruptly stopping, and gradually trying to quit and taper. So what do you think is the best way to do that, David? Um, um, 
Well, I have to confess I've already seen the article, so <laughs> I, I can't have a blank mind on this. But certainly with a lot of what's being talked about now, this whole idea of gradually tapering, especially using vapors. Right. There are so many people now who are using vapors as their taper method to to wean themselves off of, of nicotine and to be able to walk through life smoke-free. Um, and what we've been saying for a long time is we've not yet seen anybody be successful trying to taper with the vaporizer. And it, it, it seems ironic that we give advice to people, if you want to stop smoking, well, stop, drop out one cigarette a day and begin to gradually taper yourself. But we wouldn't say that to an alcoholic, and we wouldn't say that to someone who's addicted to heroin. We'll use just, you know, a tenth of a cc less today as you're injecting. We know that doesn't work. We know that trying to tell an alcoholic, now a healthy person who doesn't have the disease of addiction, who has been drinking too much, certainly a doctor advising them to taper and cut down their drinking can be very helpful in terms of managing health. But if you have the disease of addiction, how successful are people being able to actually self-taper themselves off of alcohol? It's just not a possible. It's not a possibility because what we know is that the disease of addiction is hitting um, the, the region of the brain and saying, give me more, give me more. And it's going to do that. And, and like, for example, with, with, with people who have gotten some long-term recovery and, and they end up going to a doctor's office because they break their shoulder and the doctor wants to give them opiates, their brain is going to be reactivated. So, so knowing that that part is going on, the idea that I'm going to be able to just slowly taper off of, of cigarettes um, it's, it's really nonsensical. Right. And when we, when we put it in that context, it seems sort of silly. Because we know tobacco is one of the hardest addictions for people to give up. We see this time and time again. People will come in and they will give up methamphetamine. They will stop using heroin. They will give up their alcohol. But what do they absolutely throw a fit about? It's their tobacco. You ain't touching my cigarettes. Don't touch my cigarettes. So this is a highly addictive substance, and this is probably the most continuous substance that most of our patients used. It's one of the first ones they've been introduced to. And even during long periods of recovery and sobriety from other drugs, they're still smoking. It's very powerful. So the idea we're going to take this very powerfully reinforcing, frequently dosed medication or drug substance and have somebody gradually taper. And that, though, David, that has been the classic wisdom. Well, just drop it down a few cigarettes a day, a few cigarettes a week, switch to the vaporizer, wean yourself down. It doesn't work. And this study um, clearly um, talks about the idea that people who abruptly stop were much more likely to be successful long-term and I, I think that that's really the key word, um, because there are many, many smokers out there who have quit six, seven, eight, nine times, um, but they have not been able to put together long-term abstinence. Um, 
and I think it's the study just really holds out what what we've known is that you have to just quit. There are medications that that the next study that we're talking about looks at that are helpful for the situation and increase your success rate. But with all of the medications, whether whether um, whether it's I'm blank on the name Zyban or or Camprol, all of them come with a quit date. Right. Maybe seven days in, maybe three days in, but there's a date on the calendar that says this is the last this day. This is my last day. And I I have to quote our, our friend Professor Murray Kelly up at uh, the Tobacco Healing Center and Libertas in Ottawa, Canada, because he often says to quit smoking, you have to quit smoking. The, the idea being you have to stop. It can't be, it will never be a gradual taper as a way that you're going to be successful. Now, some people seem to be able to do it, but the folks that are most successful are the ones that have a quit date and stop. Put them away, don't buy anymore, stop smoking. And this study showed. Now, again, these are not huge percentages. We know that people have to attempt to quit smoking sometimes six and seven times in order to finally be successful. But at six months, the participants in the gradual cessation, the people who tried to taper down, um, were abstinent from smoking at 22% of them. However, if they stopped abruptly, they quit smoking. Um, They found that... um they were they were much more successful up to twenty six percent were well and initially when I read the study I wondered if that was because of self selection that the ones who were gradually quitting were the ones who didn't particularly want to <laughs> didn't really want so to they got themselves in that group but it was interesting that the study actually randomized which groups the people were in um, and I imagine those people were awfully frustrated when they found out they were in the you quit today. <laughs> Group. Um, um, but it w- was able to show that uh, in a random sampling, r- random setup structure, the ones who were in the Just Quit Today group had a higher percentage of success rate. And a longer term at six months. That's, um, that's a good deal. So there is also the release in The Lancet, which is a very important um, British medical journal, um, a, a look at the smoking cessation medications. There have been some struggles over the last few years with regards to the safety of some of these medications. And in fact, one of the, the medications, Veraniclin or Chantix, uh, was given a black box warning. And there was a lot of concern that if you gave this medication, that you would induce uh, a manic episode or more um, frighteningly, um, a severe depressive disorder with suicidal ideation, that the drug itself was doing that and that it was to be used with great caution in patients. And part of the warning that as a doctor I'm required to give people is this black box warning about increased risk of suicide and increased risk of psychiatric disorders. Now, when we look at our population, people who have the disease of addiction, they're also much more likely to have a co-occurring psychiatric disorder. So this has been of some concern because clearly the studies, the combined studies, 
have shown that uh, veraniclin is more successful than the other medications and certainly it's most successful when it is combined with several of the other options. So this long-term study looked at about 8,000 people and um, they were looking at um, individuals who were smoking more than 10 cigarettes a day that uh, these were some of these folks were um, Uh, diagnosed with psychiatric disorders, some of them had addiction, some of them had neither of those things, but the study had some very interesting findings. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll find out what those findings are. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center with me today. And we're talking about addiction in the news. We're talking about this recent study that looked at over 8,000 patients trying to determine whether or not there should be a black box warning and whether or not we should be concerned about inducing severe psychiatric reactions in patients who are trying to stop smoking. And this study 
study, I think, is going to prove to be very, very helpful. And this was published in one of the premier medical journals called The Lancet. And it points out some interesting things. So this group of people, part of them had um, psychiatric disorders. So these are individuals wanting to stop smoking that were interested in um, doing so and having medication to help them. And then there were people without psychiatric disorders. And they divided these into groups. And within the groups, they were offered a variety of medications. So one was the Chantix. One was Zyban or Welbutrin bupropion. Another group was nicotine replacement, and that was the nicotine patch. And then another group had a placebo. So they divided these groups into the subgroups, and then they looked at the occurrence of significant psychiatric disorders. What was really interesting was that for smokers, if you didn't have a previously identified or diagnosed psychiatric disorder, there was no increase Incidents in terms of adverse neuropsychiatric events um, across any of the groups. And in fact, the Chantix, or the Veranoclin, was actually the lowest. It was lower even than placebo um, in terms of people having uh, depression or people having some difficulty with um, uh, mania or suicidal ideation. When they looked at the people who had neuropsychiatric disorders, they reported that um, there were similar rates of occurrences in terms of depression, mania, and suicidal ideation across all of the medications. In fact, um, Chantix was uh, at 6.5%, approximately equal to um, bupropion, Welbutrin, or Zyban at 6.7%, 5.2% with a nicotine patch, and 4.9% with placebo. So while these were significantly more impactful, they were not hugely significant. Less than 10% of the folks with neuropsychiatric disorders had a reaction that seemed to induce a psychiatric disorder. I think this is a very helpful because certainly for me as a uh, provider, as a prescribing physician, I'm less concerned about prescribing these medications and more inclined to do so. Also more inclined to look at uh, the fact that these in combination can be very helpful. But I think the other piece of this is that people who have psychiatric disorders are often on other medications. And one of the things the study doesn't talk about but is pretty commonly known is that nicotine competes with these psychiatric drugs for metabolism in the liver. And tobacco in and of itself is even a bigger competitor. So when you are smoking, you often see patients have to be on higher doses or have their medications adjusted to an effective dose. When you take the tobacco away, and even if you're replacing it with nicotine, the patients stabilize and may need adjustments to their medications. And this may have affected 
it doesn't say in this study, this is the gospel according to Susan, but um, it may have affected the stability of these folks during this um, treatment episode. And so adjustments to meds need to be carefully monitored and followed in order to keep a psychiatric patient stable during smoking cessation. So, uh, but this is very good news. A very small percentage of people had trouble, and certainly there was no increased risk among yeah, people. I think this is this is actually great news because when Chantix first came to town, there were quite a few peop- number of people who got on it and were very successful with it and and successfully quit with it. And then it really took a hit with yes. that black box warning. And even within the recovery community and the smoking cessation community, it was. Um, it was it was bad mouthed and it was shunned and it was pushed to the side as as not a good option. Mm-hmm. And, and what this study is showing is that it really is the best option by by a full percentage in some cases. Um, um, and and I remember at the time working with people who were quitting other things and used Chantex and and found it amazingly effective. So I was always kind of surprised that it disappeared from from that realm. Um, and a, and a lot of it um, was because prescribers were concerned. They were really frightened that, you know, I've got this patient that <laughs> may be unstable and now I'm really um, uh, going to potentially create a problem. Now we know that it doesn't create a problem. It may unveil a problem in someone who is vulnerable. It may certainly destabilize someone who is um, psychiatric psychiatrically impaired, but the good news is if you're monitoring and you're careful um, and you do some of the pharmacogenetic testing, which may be really helpful to you in understanding the um, metabolic pathways for their medications as well as tobacco, uh, you may be much more successful. So this is really good news because the idea of trying to help somebody stop smoking and you give them a medication and now they're going to be suicidal or mm-hmm. commit suicide, uh, that's kind of a high-risk trade-off, even though I know smoking is going to kill them eventually. I don't want to kill them tomorrow. <laughs> so um, so this, um, I think, is a very encouraging study, and I was really happy to see that because I, I do think this will allow um, prescribers to feel much more comfortable in being more aggressive and helping people stop smoking. But And, and all of the studies point towards, not this one in particular, but all the studies related to quitting smoking point towards using social support, um, either groups or individual counseling, supportive therapy, telephone therapy, and all of those things get minimized by the smokers themselves and by society because smoking's not thought of in the same light as alcoholism or drug addiction or the things that kill you right away. Um, so, so I think being able to to bring back Chantix as a good option and also to really highlight the reality that people who can just quit probably already have. Right. And then the initial let's start some treatment programs, those people came in and they quit pretty easily also because when we get down to the true addiction level, we're down to that same percentage that we deal with with all the other addictions. um, And these people need treatment. And they need need support. And they need 
medication-assisted recovery, which I think is is very important. The fact that Chantix works um, directly on the nicotinic receptors that um, Wellbutrin or Bupropion works on raising and stabilizing dopamine, and the fact that nicotine replacement also affects the nicotine receptors when there's an acute craving. All three of these combined can actually provide a really high success rate. And now that people can feel more comfortable providing that, I think, is really good news. So you can use Shantix with mm-hmm. um, Robitrin. Yes. Yes. And in fact, on a listserv um, today, as this study was released, um, some folks at Rutgers who do a lot, um, Jill Williams and her group um, at Rutgers, were commenting about the idea of really combining all three therapies to give the patient their very best, most comprehensive opportunity for success. Well, and when we look at other addictions, the the studies that we've done just in terms of how much less withdrawal medications you have to give somebody if they quit smoking at the same time, mm-hmm. it really highlights the benefit of just doing all of these at once rather than pulling out one thorn at a time. Exactly. And really, really good good news. So I'm happy about that. We um, also have a very interesting study that looks at uh, low dopamines that make uh, low dopamine levels in smokers making it much harder to stay stopped. And this is um, some really interesting work that's done at the uh, at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas looking at the brains of people who are trying to stop smoking and finding that they have um, a lower dopamine ratio. They're, they're dopamine deficient. And dopamine, as you know, is our pleasure chemical that rewards us and helps us to feel good. And so not only are they not getting an excess of dopamine when they smoke, um, now when they stop smoking, their actual resting levels of dopamine are lower, which results in people feeling even worse and seeking some relief by returning to the behavior that will at least give them a little dopamine. This is um, unfortunately what we see in so many of our people with addiction and another reason to consider a medication like Bupropion, Wellbutrin, or Zyban are the two brand names um, as this is the only medication we have currently available that actually affects dopamine. Well, and that really speaks to why you need to follow the instructions and quit on day seven so the medication has had time to do what it's supposed to do. So, thank you, David, and thank you all for listening to Addiction in the News. We'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.